pictures on the wonders that Mary had been discovering about her son. Uh, for many of us, we might have Christmases that come and go, and we hear stories, and sometimes our hearts can become cold or dull to the wonders of what Mary came to know. And so, God, we pray that through your Spirit that you would ignite in our hearts a new wonder about who you are, Jesus, that you would also ignite in the hearts of these young ones uh, a greater affection uh, for you. And Lord, meet us through your word, through your spirit, even in this, this weak vessel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Advent, Advent, the word means coming. And in this season, we celebrate the coming of Christ who came 2,000 years ago. We enter into the anticipation, the expectation of those saints that were looking forward to Christ's coming. But knowing that Jesus has already come, uh, we are also people that look with the anticipation and expectation and hope for Christ's return, who promises to come Again, And so during this season, we have been looking through a series or begun, begun to look through a series of uh, prophecies from the minor prophets, not minor because they were insignificant, but because they were small in, in how many words they communicated. But they communicated powerful, important prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. Uh, last week, Pastor Stan uh, opened the first prophecy in Malachi, the last book. But today we're going to be looking uh, at Micah, uh, the prophet Micah, uh, who preached 700 years before Jesus actually came. And uh, we find that in Micah, he actually gives us the most precise and detailed uh, prophecies concerning uh, the exact place upon which the Savior would be born, uh, aspects about his nature of his character. Uh, and, and so we look at this from Micah chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Let's follow that with me. <clears throat> now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. The prophet Micah lived uh, during a turbulent time in the divided kingdom of southern Judah and Israel. And in the political dark and turbulent times of the kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in the 8th century before Christ came. 
And one of the key themes that, that Micah was about was to be God's mouthpiece or spokesperson concerning uh, the judgments upon the nations for their persistent sins and their covenant unfaithfulness. At this time, God's judgment had already descended upon the ten northern tribes of Israel. They had already been actually defeated. Samaria had been captured, the capital of Israel, and the ten tribes had been taken into exile by the Assyrians. And now Sennacherib, the present king of Assyria, is gobbling up cities and vulnerable towns around Judah like a Pac-Man, and the city of Jerusalem is under attack, under siege, and they are feeling the heat of their situation. But Micah's message was not only about God's judgment, it was also about God's forgiveness. It was about God's covenant faithfulness and the promised return to redeem and to unite and to restore through a shepherd ruler. Yet like many of us, we feel uh, the power of overwhelming darkness that surrounds us at times. It is too hard sometimes to see the light of God's promised grace. In chapters 4, verse 9, God says through Micah, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Tuesday night, I believe, I came down with food poisoning. And the reason I believed it is because I was food poisoned before, and I know what it feels like. It's horrible. You wish you had died. And uh, you can't get over the pain. It, I had some nausea uh, earlier in the day. Uh, I was not feeling right, and, and I got home, and I thought, well, maybe I just need to rest and... <clears throat> And so I took a handful of Tums, you know, and thought that would settle my stomach down, and, and that really wasn't working. So I took Paul's prescription of uh, taking some wine to, for, his, for Timothy's stomach, uh, but that really wasn't helpful either. Uh, maybe I just need to get some sleep. And so after a brief period of resting, I was awakened by violent cramping of the most excruciating manner. Nothing I could do would stop the torture. I was crying out, Jesus, help me. God, help me. Jesus, help me. And let's say I wasn't feeling much help. There was no relief, at least for a long time. And then there would be a period of rest, and I would lie down, my weary body on the bed, and then soon I would be reawakened with a sudden, violent, agonizing cramping. And I would go into this crying out again. Now, Maria <coughs> told me later, she says, now you know what it feels like to be a woman in labor. I spent most of my evening in the bathroom or in any bathrooms I could find in the house. <coughs> now, in the moments of overwhelming pain and crying out to God with no relief, my mind went to these thoughts. God is punishing you. You are such a big sinner. You are getting what you deserve. What sins have you committed that you haven't confessed? Now, I knew those voices were distorting the truth that they were lies, but they felt true at the time. 
I knew in my head that God does not treat his children like their sins deserve. I knew that we have a father who brings, who allows us to experience hardship as a good loving father does bringing discipline to his children to help conform them to the holiness of his son. But at the time, I did not feel that. In those dark times of unrelenting pain, in the discouraging times when all you feel is gloom and doom, it is easy to go there. It is where the people of Judah went as they saw only dark signs around them. And it's where many people go during this holiday season whose hard life situations, whether it's loneliness or whether it's debt or financial stress or failing health or broken relationships or broken hearts are intensified in the face of a season where everything is supposed to be bright and merry. God knows we go there. And so he says through Micah, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? And so God comes to us through the prophet Micah, and he surprises us in our times of darkness with the promise of a grace-filled king. That is at the heart of these opening words in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, and here we see the judgment on the proud, the grace on the humbled, and the peace from the shepherd or of the shepherd. The judgment on the proud. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid upon us. Chapter 5 follows the theme of God's hand of judgment. The chronic, because of their chronic rebellion and their unrelenting sinful pride by the agency of the Assyrians. It focuses on the present distress of their situation that King Sennacherib had laid siege against Jerusalem. Micah 4:11 says, Now many nations are assembled against you. Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But in these words from the opening of chapter 5, there's now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. There's a, uh, a, a somewhat of a, a, a play on words, a sarcasm. Uh, they do not have the wherewithal to defend themselves. It is a pitiful picture of a city and a people on the brink of utter ruin. And what is the nature of their rebellion and sin that has brought them to this point? Well, Micah, besides listing the worshiping of idols and the false gods of the nations, uh, the corruption of the leaders and the false prophets, in verse chapter 2, 11, says, If a liar... And deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. He would be just the prophet for this people. Then cruelty and oppressing people and presuming God does not care or see. He says in chapter 3, 9, Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And so there's a presumption of innocence. Then there 
was the belief that by doing some kind of religious ritual exercises, making sacrifices will make everything okay, and God, uh, and God, uh, when and God would be fine with that, even though they had no sincerity of repentance. One of the most famous verses many of us uh, remember or even repeat. Um, uh, raises this proud form of worship of God in Micah 6, starting with verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And, And he's talking about their religious presumption. They come to, maybe they come to church, or maybe they go to their religious... Uh, rituals, and they do sacrifices, and they expect that God is going to appease them, even though their hearts aren't sincere. But this is what Micah says through God's word. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so the core heartbeat of all such sins of pride, and not walking humbly with the one who in love and grace and dignity created us, gave us life and breath, sheds grace upon us every day. It is this God that we owe our hearts. We owe him worship. We owe him our allegiance. But we often give our hearts and our allegiance to lesser things, to created things, to idols of personal success or to the respect and pleasing of others or to our security needs or that we bend to the fears that we feel, or of being our own gods. In my, uh, in my body pump class at the Y, a young lady had imprinted on her shirt, on the back of her shirt, a line from the poem Invictus, which means unconquered, by English poet William Ernest Henley. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, now, while normally it's thought of, a, of as a declaration or a call to self-discipline and fortitude in adversity that many esteemed leaders have recited, whether it's um, Nelson Mandela or uh, Winston Churchill, it can also be used as a declaration of prideful arrogance and self-absorbed callousness, such as the Oklahoma bomber Timothy McVeigh said in his final statements before he was executed. The question is, who is worthy to be the captain of your soul? Who is worthy to be the master of your fate? These are God questions. And Micah reminds us what God requires, that we should walk humbly with our God to do justice and to love mercy. You know, God gave the Israel kings a charge in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He told them to make a copy. They were to write a copy of the law of God and to read it every day of their lives. And it, and it, and it says that they should not consider themselves better than their brothers. Or, and, and so there was this call to humility and to staying close with God. With these leaders of Israel, of Judah, had left that practice. And one of the practices of the priests that I heard in the performing of the sacred ordination ceremony of kings was that somewhere in that ceremony, the priest would actually slap the face 
of a king. It was to be a graphic reminder that they were God's servants, that they did not attain to this position of authority by their own strength, but that they were placed there as God's agent, under God's authority. Verse 1 says that instead of an ordination slap of honor to serve as king, the deposed king would be publicly humiliated with the strike of a rod. With the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek as the king of Israel was taken away by the Assyrians. Now, as the people of God, our first calling is not to point fingers at others and or to be quick to criticize or condemn those uh, who have not made any sincere claim to follow God, the God of the Scriptures. You know, the, we sang the song, to be sought and light in the world. That is the call of professed believers, to be sought and light in the world. That is our call. The first call for us is to ask God to help us to help us to walk humbly with him, to own our faults and our failings, to ask God as a psalmist, says, search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me and know my anxious thoughts, and to practice the living faith of walking humbly, of doing justice and loving mercy. But, you know, it's easy. It is easy to slip into despair because any serious assessment of our hearts reveal so much pride so much selfishness and lust and envy and greed and unrighteous anger. We may think God can really never love me that deeply because of all my sins. And some people look at all of the mess in our world or who give any sustained listening to the news or who listen to the, the uh, discouraging conjectures of some who may say prophetic utterances like, these bad things that are happening to us, or we have these sorry leaders because we are under God's judgment. We are getting what we deserve. As such statements are really presumptuous unless a person is an authoritative prophet who speaks the very mind of God. Uh, they have no place to say such things, and it's not helpful. But here is what is helpful. Micah 5, 2, which reveals God's relentless grace on the humble. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose origin is from of old, the ancient of days. This is the driving theme throughout scriptures, regardless of how dark it gets, Regardless of how hopeless it seems or how despairing it appears, God interjects the surprise, but of grace. But you, O Bethlehem. Isaiah 9 says it like this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Or Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. The but of grace here in Micah 2 focuses on the nature of who God's surprising grace comes through. But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me a ruler of Israel. 
God, speaking through Micah, is making a point. God pours out his grace on those who were considered the least in the world, the smallest of the world, the overlooked, the apparently unimportant of the world. Uh, John Piper puts it like this. God speaks in contrast the littleness of the town of Bethlehem with the greatness of the ruler who will come out of her. Bethlehem is scarcely worth counting among the clans of Judah, yet God chooses to bring out the magnificent Messiah out of this town. Why? Well, one reason is because David uh, was from that lineage and David was from Bethlehem. But the point of verse 2 is this, that Bethlehem is small. God chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and something that Something here that changes the course of history and eternity. Why? Because when he acts this way, we cannot boast in our merits, only in the glorious mercy of God. We can't say, well, of course he set his favor on Bethlehem. That's such a great city. All we can say is God is not impressed with bigness. When God chose to replace King Saul, he sent Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem. When he chose the sons of Jesse, he set his favor on the youngest, not the oldest. When God chose a man to defeat Goliath, it was little David. And when he chose a weapon, it was a slingshot. Why? Why does God do great work through little towns, through youngest sons, slingshots, mangers, and mustard seeds? Well, David tells us in 1 Samuel 17, before he slays the giant Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you in my hands, that all the earth may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose the low and the despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may, might boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God chose a stable so no innkeeper might boast. He chose my inn. Who would boast he chose my inn? Or God chose a manger so that no woodworker would boast. He chose a craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so that no one could boast. The greatness of our city constrained the divine choice. Bethlehem means that God does not bestow the blessing of salvation on the basis of our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When Micah contrasts little Bethlehem with the greatness of the Messiah, he shows God acting in his typical fashion to magnify his glory and to turn human boasting into gratitude and praise and faith. You might be here today, and you might feel insignificant. You might feel small, nothing to brag about. You might feel like you're not the sharpest tool in this shed. Nothing to write home about. You might think that you're not worth making a fuss over. Other people are more important, more gifted, more to offer. But the God of the scriptures, the God of Micah, says, no, you are important to me. You are just the kind of person I come after. 
You are just the kind of person I want to showcase my glory. Uh, yesterday in the Washington Post was a powerful story about Annie Glenn, the wife of John Glenn, that pilot who flew 149 combat missions and who became the first pilot, the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962, who died this week at the age of 95. Annie and John were married, uh, and they were married for 73 years, had a very strong marriage. And while most of the world was familiar with John Glenn, little was known about Annie. For most of her life, Annie was afflicted with an 85% stutter, meaning that she would become hung up on 85% of the words that she tried to speak, which was a severe handicap. John put it, it was torture for Annie. Many inconveniences might seem small to us, but John recalled, for Annie, stuttering meant not being able to take a taxi because she would have to write out the address and give it to the driver because she couldn't get the words out. It would be too embarrassing to try to talk about where she wanted to go. Going to the store is, was tremendously difficult and frustrating experience when you can't find what you want and can't ask the clerk because you are too embarrassed of your stutter. Once her daughter stepped on a nail. As blood gushed out, Annie couldn't speak well enough to call 911. Instead, she found a neighbor to make the call for her. And so she spent the early years of her marriage avoiding the spotlight. But then in one day in 1973, the, uh, they were watching a Today Show, and a doctor was discussing new methods of treatment for stutterers, an intensive three-week program in Roanoke, Virginia. Annie enrolled, they made their, her relearn each letter of the alphabet. They forced her to go to a shopping center and shop to ask questions for the first time. The enrollees weren't allowed to call friends or family for three weeks. When it was over, Annie picked up the telephone. When I called John, he cried. Annie said, people just couldn't believe that I could really talk. And when she got home, according to John's memoir, she talked. He recalled one of her first lines. John, I've wanted to tell you this for years. Pick up your socks. <laughs> she, was, she was 53 years old, and she had found her calling. Annie began to give speeches on behalf of her husband when he ran for Senate. After each speech, she would rush to greet those everyone else ignored, the disabled. In the post, Mara McPherson observed in 1984, after years of cruel slurs of being overlooked by stranger, Annie Glenn seeks out the handicapped. In a crowd, she heads straight for those in wheelchairs. She has a sort of radar, finds the shyest person in the room, and takes the time to draw him out. A group of deaf people were in the audience at one of her husband's speeches. Afterward, Annie Glenn went over to them and soon was learning sign language. As the press crowded around Glenn, he looked over at his wife who was signing, I love you, to the deaf. That's what you should be covering, he told the reporters. And uh, she apparently became an uh, adjunct professor of speech pathology at the Department of Ohio State University. In so many ways, Annie Glenn has 
been and has been mirroring the character of our God who goes after the small people, the weak, the overlooked, the ignored, the unpopular ones, like he goes after, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and like he goes after you and me. But finally, our Micah not only shows us the surprise of God's grace on the humbled of the world, he shows us the peace of the shepherd. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There's uh, a lot in Micah that talks about how this shepherd ruler will come and bring peace. In the chapter 4, talks about the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it, and many nations will come and to this. And, and it, it says in verse 3, And he will judge between many peoples, and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords and plowshares their, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for a war anymore. Ain't going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war no more. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield. That's the spiritual uh, pre-Civil War song uh, down by the riverside. And it's a beautiful picture of peace, is it not? And isn't it such a yearning in our world for such peace? I mean, as we think yesterday, this bombing in Turkey that killed 29 people, and uh, hundreds were wounded. And then I read, heard this morning that an explosion happened out of a Coptic cathedral in Cairo, killing 20 people and injuring scores more. I mean, every single day we realize there's just war and terrorism and bloodshed that's happening around our world. Uh, yesterday was also, however, a great day for uh, sports. The Army-Navy game that was played at the M&T Bank Stadium. And uh, this is probably one of the biggest sports events of the year. Uh, and this was an upset yesterday because Navy has beat Army 14 years in a row. And they, they were, the prognosticators said that they expected Navy to win again, but Army beat Navy for the first time in many, many years. It's a great rivalry, a forced competition, but it's also an enchanting rivalry because uh, these soldiers, after the game, uh, are comrades for the same cause. And one of the traditions uh, in the Army-Navy game is that at the end of each game, each team, whether it's the Navy or Army, they will sing the other uh, alma mater to each other. They sing the heart language, and they celebrate uh, their comrades, even though they're in fierce competition, because they recognize they're united to a greater cause. But how much greater cause are God's people united across the divides of the world? And we look forward to that peace that he has promised to bring, but you need to recognize in verse 5, it doesn't say that he comes to bring peace. It says, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Well, what does that mean? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
Through his blood, he has made peace. Through the cross, he has made peace. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The last words of Micah reveal the ultimate peace that this shepherd ruler came to bring was the peace as a redeemer of sinners, as a reconciler to address and to remove our sins from our lives, that we might be reconciled back to a holy God and Father through the blood and the death of a perfect Savior. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in the days long ago. It's a beautiful picture, the idea of treading our sins underfoot and hurling them into the depths of the sea. Uh, one of the things I like about going to the ocean is the ocean is often a reminder to me of the majesty and the greatness of God. Uh, and, I, you know, you get to the ocean and you have the, the waves that are, the, the rhythms of the waves lapping upon the shore, the constancy of God is kind of reflected. Uh, you think of the magnitude of the ocean, how wide you can't see the edges, you can't see the ends. And you think about how broad and deep and high and wide is the love of God. And so I love going to the ocean. But this, last week, uh, Maria, my wife and I, Maria, were able to spend a few days at the ocean. And uh, we were staying just a couple places down from this uh, hotel called the Seascape. Uh, they had a big fence around it because it was being uh, demolished. But for me, the seascape brought back a flood of memories because when I was 15 years old, I went with a group of about three or 400 high schoolers uh, that went on a Young Life weekend. Uh, when I, and, uh, and it was there that I heard a message about this Savior who died on the cross for me and for my sins. And uh, on Saturday night at these uh, retreats, uh, they have the cross talk, and they tell the, uh, the students that for the next 20 minutes, we don't want to hear a peep. We don't want any speaking. You're to be silent, and you're to do business with God. Now, how do you get four or 500 high school students to be quiet on a Saturday night for 20 minutes? That's a miracle in itself. But somehow, there was silence. And I remember going out on that beach and uh, doing business with God, recognizing that this was it. You know, I, I needed a Savior, and He was my Creator, and I needed to give my life to Him, and so I did. I said, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, do it. Um, and, uh, and then a year later, uh, Johnny Erickson, who was, uh, many maybe know her, she was my young life leader. And uh, we went back down, and I had got this bass, and I was playing bass before the group. And my young life leader came up to me, and, and this, this guy, and he said, 
Craig, I w- can you give your testimony in five minutes? If he told me that any more time, I would have been totally afraid, feared out of my wits. And so I said, yes. I gave my testimony before these 400, 500 kids. And, uh, you know, the Lord did business in my life that year. So and now I'm a 16-year-old. Well, Seascape Hotel was a big deal for me and great these memories. Well, uh, it was being demolished. And I thought, well, as I went past it, the constructor or demolishers were there. And I said, hey, how much for that sign? And uh, the guy said, $25. I said, deal. He says, come back at 5 o'clock, and I'll have it ready for you. I said, okay. And so I came back at uh, 5 o'clock, and the sign was down. And he said, hey, uh, actually, somebody else wanted this sign, and I made a deal with them for $50. I said, oh, man, so I was going to get $50 for that sign. I said, you know, you should take that. Uh, you know, I have a picture. I don't really need it. And I started walking away. And he says, I don't think they're going to take that sign. <clears throat> so I got this sign for $25, <laughs> uh, the Seascape Hotel. And it's in my basement right now. Uh, well, what's, what's the chances of, like, 47 years after an event that I would just happen to be at Ocean City at the moment where they would demolish this. And uh, it was just the act of God's kindness, you know. But it was a reminder that my sins have been thrown into the depths of the sea so that I can escape. I can escape the punishment and the wrath of God because Jesus did that for me. And what an important reminder of the grace of God. Micah comes to us. But you, O Bethlehem, you little Bethlehem, he comes after the weak, he comes after the vulnerable, he comes after the humbled. And so he comes after you. Have you done business with God? Have you confessed your sins? And if you haven't, I encourage you to come to the prayer intercessors and and do that. Uh, If you have done that, I encourage everybody that can come out to pray tonight with us that we might be a people that walk humbly with God, that seek justice and do mercy, and that we can listen to each other and pray for our country, pray for our nation, pray for our leaders. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful that you give us the reminders from Micah that uh, as dark as things might appear uh, with the siege works of the enemies around us and the defeat of so many before us, God, that you are still on the throne. That, God, you are still God of gods, Lord of lords. You are a shepherd king who loves your people. And, Lord, I pray that you would let us live in that in this season and that you would strengthen us to be agents of your grace and light in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.